I know that you've had those moments in your life. Um, a moment that I recall um, some years ago in our the very first home that we owned in Martinsburg. It was, of course, a Saturday night, never at a strategic, convenient time, always at a time when you're on the threshold of, of being very busy and the demands are great. So it was uh, late on a Saturday evening. I was in my stocking feet, my socks only. I don't wear stockings. I, I had socks on. And um, <clears throat> sounded like my mom there for a minute. And I was walking, our home was a tri-level, and I went down the, the steps out of our foyer that went down into a carpeted family room, and immediately as I stepped off the bottom step onto the carpet, I realized that something was really wrong, because immediately my foot just squished into about two inches of water in that carpet. I had been washing the car that afternoon, and there was a spigot right outside the window of that family room, and it had a frost-free spigot. We had had some very cold weather, and then uh, a nice sunny afternoon thawed everything, and I was actually washing the salt off our car, and, and I, it was when I had opened the valve on that frost-free that it had um, uh, revealed evidently inside the wall a rupture from freeze. Without realizing it, even as I had shut off my hose, and what I think I had done is left the spigot wide open, and I had not turned it off, and I had only let the the spray valve on the end of the hose shut the hose off. And all afternoon and into the evening, that water was pouring through the wall and down into the basement, and I had no idea, and it had filled our entire family room with water and ruined the carpet and I looked and the water was running out underneath the patio door out into the backyard. Now, do you know that, um, that immediately everything changed in my world? I had an urgent need. I needed to stop the broken pipe. I I needed to deal with what I needed to deal with that night and to get by so that we could get to church Sunday morning. I remember that I had a friend. Some of you know him. His name's Dean Klein. And it was after 11 p.m. on a Saturday night. And I didn't know what to do. And I decided I better get that carpet up. And I, at that point, because I was so poor, I was trying to save my carpet. I called Dean. He is already in bed said, Dean, I have a broken pipe. I, I have water filling my basement. I need help. He said, I'll be right over. Dean had a friend who was in urgent need. We've been talking about urgency. This is the third and final message to launch the year at Fellowship Bible Church. Um, the very first Sunday of the new year, we simply laid the foundation about the reality that throughout Scripture, there is a thread of urgency for those who live for God. The Apostle Paul talked about pressing towards the mark and the goal and the, the prize of the high calling of God. He talked about beating his body into into subjection and, and disciplining himself and that he would win the prize and that he would run the race 
so that he would win. There is an urgency about the Christian life. We've tried to emphasize that this is not marginless living. This is not stressed out living. But this is living with a sense of duty towards the ultimate priorities of our lives. The things that really matter. And that the Word of God is true. And, and that the realities of eternity... Last week, the reality of an eternity without Christ and and the consequences of hell bring an urgency to the gospel and that we as individuals and as a church are to be characterized by urgency in our lives. Living with urgency. Driven by the urgency of the gospel. Today, on this Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, acknowledging the urgency of the hour for the body of Christ. I invite you to turn to a historical book in our Bibles. It's in the Old Testament. It's the book of Esther. Our Sanctity of Human Life message this year is uh, somewhat a little bit different because we're simply going to look at this great story. It occurred to me in my preparation that we are not the first generation of God's people who have lived in oppressive days under wicked rulers who in the darkness of their own minds and in the hardness of their own hearts, though they hold the power of life and death in their hands, refuse to acknowledge the righteousness of God, refuse to acknowledge the reflection of the image of God, even in the unborn, and in some illogical, to me, indiscernible way, cannot seem to grasp that unborn babies are more important than, than, than unborn kittens or born kittens. And because of evolutionary theory and because of, of naturalism and, and the secular nature of their heart and the denial of a, of a creator God, they believe that there is no differentiation between animal life and human life. And, and they don't see the image of God reflected in humanity versus animal life, or even trees and grass. And you can feel it, and you can see it, and you can read about it, that we live, even in the United States, a nation founded upon Christian principle, that we have become a nation that now worships the earth. And that the urgency of the hour somehow has become the temperature of the day. And, and, and so our thinking is distorted and reality is convoluted. And those without a biblical worldview, um, they just don't get it. Can I say that without arrogance? They just don't get it. And you know, we remind ourselves, and we reminded ourselves last week with the urgency of the gospel, that it's, it's not that they're just like extraordinarily dumb it is that they are extraordinarily blinded. And ultimately their hearts are hardened by sin. And they need the light of the gospel to shine brightly. We have, when we look at the history of God's people, moments and times and, and eras where wickedness prevailed and God's people um, have lived under regimes of atrocity and brutality. And darkness. And so what I would like to do for our message today is, is I would like to look at this, this most unusual 
passage of Scripture, the book of Esther. Many of you know the story. We'll recap it here in a moment. But as we lay a foundation and as we look into this story, where we're heading is actually ultimately in chapter 4. And Esther is not so much our hero today as is her cousin Mordecai. And if you're taking notes, ultimately we will get to a point where I want to draw out some life lessons on how Mordecai, who was essentially a righteous man in a pagan country and culture, he was a Jew who was living in in another land, Persia, under a wicked Persian king. And I want you to see how he responds when darkness envelops his world and the sanctity of human life is absolutely disregarded by the king, as it is in our culture. The issue was not abortion in Mordecai's situation, but it was genocide. Nevertheless, it was equally a disregard for the sanctity of human life. And I want us to see how Mordecai responded, because perhaps like like me, you wonder, what do I do in this culture? How do I respond? How do I help influence on this? And I trust that it will be encouraging and helpful. You need to understand in this story, um, let's just kind of relax and and, uh, have somewhat of an informal approach here this morning. Um, Some of you know this story very well. Others of you, you kind of know it. And others of you, it could be a brand new story. One of the things when we turn to the book of Esther is um, it is a historical account. So it's a part of a a history lesson. It's part of the history of Israel. What makes Esther, uh, this account, unusual is that it is the only book in the Bible where the name of God is never mentioned. It It is likely that Mordecai and Esther were uh, living uh, embedded in this Persian culture with some fear of being known as God's people because you will see two striking realities in this story if you read it. One is that, and using it perhaps in contrast with Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, where they were over in Babylon, all right, that would be present-day Iraq area, they were taking out, taken out in the dispersion and, and uh, in captivity. And in a similar way, uh, Ahasuerus had come and his father as well and had taken people out of Israel, but they had taken them over to what would be present day Iran. It would be Persia. And so there's a difference uh, there. It's similar, but it's different in that these Jewish young people and they were taken by the thousands Um, were taken out of their homeland and they were used in servitude and in a variety of ways, often treated fairly well. In this case, uh, those who were taken to Persia, many of them had an opportunity to go back. And they are some uh, who you will read about in the book of Ezra, for example, who were there early on and were rebuilding the temple. and, And then later on, Nehemiah will build the walls and so forth. So some were trickling back to Israel. But what you have in this story is you have a man named Mordecai who stayed. It is evident in the story that he has some level of of political influence and he's known by the king and he works 
at some kind of a government job. He has connections and he has access to information. The other thing that's unusual uh, about this, so uh, what I was starting to say in all of that is that, that Mordecai, while living in Persia, did not reveal that he was a Jew. That was the contrast I wanted to make between Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When Daniel, Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego were taken into Babylon, immediately, almost the first day in captivity, they let the whole world know that they were part of Israel. They were Jewish young men, and they refused to eat the king's meat and drink his wine. Remember? What you have in Mordecai is someone who's embedded in a government position, who's living in the land with a, a, a relative uh, amount of freedom, and normalcy, but he, he does not reveal that he's a Jew. He also has influence upon this young woman, Esther, and he tells her not to reveal that you're a Jew. As a result of that, they kind of stay embedded in the system and where Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego would stand up immediately and even in public places and announce I am, a, I am a son of the living God. I don't do this. What you have in Mordecai and Esther is you have people who are embedded in the system who don't talk about their God. And it is possible that, that they had become somewhat secularized. And yet they were loyal to their past. And they understood the history of Israel. And they understood that God was sovereign. So there's a little bit of a contrast in the mindset. As we enter the story. Now, let's um, remind ourselves that there are five key players in this story. If you're going to understand the story, the story is far too vast for us to cover in the time that we have. But I think that we can capture it. And by capturing the story, you need to you need to know who the key players are. So let's let our eyes go to chapter one. And let's see that right away. We're talking about the days of Ahasuerus. Um, this is the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces Provinces in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. This was a great city that he had built for himself. In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and his servants. And the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, in fact, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people who were present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, he gave them a feast. So there's a, another seven-day feast that lasted seven days. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of, of whatever the next word is in the ESB, porphyry and marble and mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels and vessels of different kinds and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king and drinking was according to this edict. Quote, there is no compulsion. In other words, no rules. Free for all. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. And Queen Vashti gives a third feast. A feast for the women of the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Now let's just stop there and take in a little bit what the foundation of our story is. Key player number one, King Ahasuerus. In some of your Bibles it might say Xerxes. That would be a, a Greek uh, rendition of his name. Ahasuerus is a Hebrew rendition of his Persian name. 
He was the man. Um, let me read to you straight out of uh, Warren Wiersbe's comments on the book of Esther about why he was throwing these feasts. This is a little historical background. It's kind of interesting. And I think the fastest thing for me to do is just read it and you take what you can get from it. You wonder, what was the purpose behind the banquet for the nobles and the officials of the empire? Scripture doesn't tell us, but secular history does. Greek historians may refer to these banquets in, in a text called History by Herodotus, where he states that Ahasuerus was conferring with his leaders about a possible invasion of Greece. Ahasuerus' father, Darius I, not to be confused with the Darius in the book of Daniel, by the way, had invaded Greece and had been shamefully defeated at Marathon in 490. While preparing to return to Greece and get revenge, Darius had died in 486, and now his son, Ahasuerus, felt compelled to avenge his father and expand his empire at the same time. Herodotus claims that Ahasuerus planned to invade all of Europe and reduce the whole earth into one empire. According to Herodotus, the king's words were these, quote, My intent is to throw a bridge over the Hellespont and march an army through Europe against Greece, and thereby I may obtain vengeance from the Athenians for the wrongs committed by them against the Persians and against my father. Uh, though he was advised against it by some of his leaders, Ahasuerus tries to do that. Ultimately what happens... Um, is he sits on a throne on a cliff and he watches them defeat his entire navy. And it doesn't work. What's happening in chapter 1 is likely he's bringing in all of these advisors and military leaders and he's showing them with all of this grandeur and pomp that he deserves to rule the world. And so he's throwing this incredible banquet and he's getting them soused, drunk. And they're drinking. And there were no rules. Excavations of some of these kinds of palaces show that they had pits built into the middle of their banquet halls so that they could disengorge themselves during the meals and the drinking and continue their revelry for day and night. And this banquet, one of them references, did you see, for seven continuous days. It was nothing but a hedonist, pagan feast of debauchery. And that's player number one, Ahasuerus. Player number two is in the next section of the chapter. Let's read starting with verse 10. We're, we're introduced to player number two, Queen Vashti, in verse 9. She gives a feast. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he was drunk. He commanded uh, Mehuman, uh, Bizda, Habarna, Bigatha, and all these other guys, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Got the picture? The men are on one side of the court having a huge feast for seven days. The women are on the other side of the court having a huge feast for the ladies for seven days. The king is not in his right mind. His faculties are impacted by wine. There's a lesson for all of us there. Well, not me, because I never drink, but... If I did, you can't handle it. I'll spare you the lecture. The king is influenced under the influence. And he gets this idea. Let me show all these guys how beautiful my wife is. 
And he calls for Vashti to come and parade herself through the male banquet hall. Notice verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Whoa! We have, we have a rebellious queen on our hands. You have to recognize that this king has been humiliated by his wife in front of all the most influential people that he's trying to impress. If you read on in chapter 1, you recognize that he then calls a council and he says, What do I do because my wife refused to obey me? You now have insecure, brutal men making a rule for the king on how the people of the kingdom, the men of the kingdom, should treat their wives. Look at chapter 1, verse 17. This is what they tell the king. For the queen's behavior, verse 17, will be made known to all the women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and he did not come. She did not come. So this very day, the noble women of Persia and Medea, who have heard the queen, queen heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath. And so let the king, look at the end of verse 19, give her royal position to another who is better than she. Fire her, divorce her, get rid of her from your court. So when the decree was made by the king, it is proclaimed throughout his kingdom, for it is vast. All women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. It's laughable. All of the women of the kingdom have to obey their husbands. And Queen Vashti just got separated. She was never, ever to appear before the king's sight again. I don't know if that happened. Interestingly enough, this lays the foundation for our key players for the whole story. Notice, uh, when he comes to his senses, there is evidently some regret. Look at the beginning of chapter 2. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, as well as the drunkenness, I presume, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. And then the king's young men cook up an idea because they recognize that the king is vexed. He has spoken into law something that cannot be reversed. You see, these guys were so arrogant in their power that the way the laws were established was that if they said it, and especially if they put their signet ring in it, it was irreversible. So Vashti was done. She was over. He couldn't change that. And he realizes, you get the idea reading between the lines, that he realizes that he has to do something about this and he's not sure what. And so the young guys in, who attend him um, said, let the king appoint officers in all the provinces, verse 3, of his kingdom and gather beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa and the, in the citadel under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let their cosmetics be given to them and let the young women who please the king be queen instead of Vashti. The young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And this pleased the king. This then kicked into gear this kind of forced beauty pageant. We have no idea if Esther wanted to be a part of this. We are now introduced to Mordecai and Esther. Take a look at chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai. Here's our third key player. We've met Ahasuerus the king. We've met, and she's already gone from the scene, his wife, Vashti, because of her refusal to please her husband. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jar. And that gives his history. He was a Benjamite. Benjaminite. 
who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. And he was bringing up Hadassah, that's Esther's Hebrew name, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, they were cousins, for she had neither father nor mother, she had been orphaned. And the young woman, this is describing Esther, the young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. We now have the next two players that are important to understand in our story. We have Ahasuerus, we have Vashti. Vashti gets fired because of her rebellion. The king then wants to kick into gear a forced beauty pageant. It lasts for nearly four years. Historians tell us that from, from chapter, uh, about chapter one to the middle of chapter two, four years have gone by and that Ahasuerus has already been on that campaign that he was trying to influence his military leaders with in chapter one and he has lost and he's back home now. And so he's not making war, so he's thinking about making love, I guess. And so he's looking for building up his harem and finding a new queen. And we are introduced to this key player, player Mordecai, who was the mature elderly cousin of Esther. Esther is raised by Mordecai, and she ends up being in this beauty contest. She ends up being corralled in the king's harem. You can read on, and, and you can see that what happens is they, they use cosmetics, and, and uh, they control their diet and their exercise and their clothing. And one at a time, these women go into the king. Then they are returned out to the dormitory where they're kept. And if the king calls for one of them to come back, she's going to be the queen. Let's read. And so Esther was taken in the middle of verse 8. Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Haggai, who was in char- had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of the food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her. So she was looked favorably upon in this whole process. Let your eyes go to chapter 2, verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except that Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, uh, advised. Now, as he had advised. Now, Esther was winning favor in all the eyes of all who saw her. She was evidently strikingly beautiful. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Teba, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And then the king gave a great feast for all of his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. The king was well pleased. We now have Esther in the sovereign oversight of God, strategically placed, unknown to King Ahasuerus that she is a Jew, strategically placed as the queen, Ahasuerus' new queen. Because of time, I'm going to have to move quickly so that we can get to our main points and make this make sense on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. What happens next in the chapter is really interesting. 
Mordecai, who works at the king's gate, discovers that there's an assassination plot, that these two these two servants of the king are cooking up an assassination plot. Mordecai uncovers it, reports it to the king. What happens then is after these things in chapter 3, all right, um, there is an introduction of our fifth and final but most key player. His name is Haman. So let's just review our story. We have King Ahasuerus. We have Vashti who gets fired. We have Uncle Mordecai who raised the beautiful Esther. Esther who's chosen to be the new queen. And now the fifth player is a guy named Haman. Haman, you'll find out later, and we don't have time to develop him. He's a most interesting character. And perhaps uh, because of our incompleteness this morning, you will find it interesting uh, to reread this story. It's fascinating. Ultimately, what happens is um, Haman, let's read about him. He's introduced to chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agite, That's in relationship to Agag the king, who Samuel hewed in pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. The son of Hamadath uh, advanced him and set him on his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servant who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? You see, it's social rebellion. It's a civil disobedience. The king commanded. He had elevated this wicked Haman to a high degree. But Mordecai, who was also an official there, refused to bow down when he walked in and out of the king's gate where he did his business. And it starts to work on Haman. And when they spoke to him day after day, verse 4, he would not listen to them. Mordecai would not bow down to Haman. And he told, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. So he begins to tell them that he's a Jew. In other words, I don't bow down to anybody but the living God. As a result of that, when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. So without meaning to, Mordecai begins to open the door to the movement of genocide in the land to wipe out all the Jews. Look what it says. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Here's what happens. Haman goes to the king. He says, King, are you aware of the fact that embedded in our country are a group of people who refuse to... Obey your laws. He particularly hates Mordecai. Mordecai is representative of as somewhat of a leader among the Jews. The word gets out. It's spread across the country. Ahasuerus, in his pride and his arrogance, then casts a law, puts his signet ring in it, and he says that all Jews everywhere must be killed. And he sets a day for it. Letters were sent, verse 13 of chapter 3. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children in one day. And it gives the date. Now listen, we have kings and rulers. Some wear long black robes. Others sit in an oval office. Others, who knows what they do on the Senate and floor of the house pontificate and pretend to be something something that they're not. They're disgusting. And I don't respect, I hardly respect any of them. 
And I won't bow down to them. And I want Mordecai to be my model. And I only bow down to the living God. And they cast a law in Mordecai's day that all will die on this day. Our people haven't made that kind of a law yet. But they say, you may from this day on kill if you want to. What happens then is Mordecai, in chapter 4, begins to respond. Let me just rattle off what you will find, because there are ten lessons from Mordecai's life, and I have effectively taken all of our time just to lay the groundwork. And during the Sunday school hour, we'll attempt to remodel and refurbish and um, see if we can make this happen a little smoother in the second service. But chapter 4 is where it all comes to a head. And you notice right away in chapter 4, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He gets Esther's attention. He calls out to Esther and let your eyes go to chapter 4 to the key verse that that is most well known. Beginning at verse 14, he says to Esther, If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But see, he believed God was going to rescue him. But you and your father's house will perish. In other words, all of us are going to die, but the Jews at large, they will still survive. He believed in the Abrahamic covenant. So this is Mordecai talking to Esther in chapter 4, verse 14. And who knows at the end of the verse, he says, whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And then Esther told him to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. Hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days and night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther ordered him. The two have worked a plan. Esther then, you're going to have to read the rest of the story yourself. Esther risks her life because she is not invited into the presence of the king. And to avoid assassination, there was a rule that if anybody came through the king's court, through a certain point of the door where the king could see them, they were immediately killed by the guards. Unless the king held out his scepter, saw them and said, hey, let them in. So Esther was going to do that. Esther was going to go without an invitation. It says in the text that for 30 days she had not even been with the king. He hadn't even been with his wife for 30 days. She had no idea what her standing was at that point with her husband. These guys are fickle. They're unstable. They're arrogant. They're brutal. And so she does it. Ultimately, she wins the day. You have to read the rest of the story. You look in chapter 4 and Mordecai is our model. How do we respond? Mordecai is responding to genocide. We are responding to abortion, to euthanasia, to assisted suicide. Both, all blatant disregard for the sanctity of life. Here's our lessons from Mordecai. I'm just going to read them off. Lessons learned from Mordecai's response. Number one, he was openly grieved by the laws of death that were implemented. Do you grieve at our laws of death? I would think it would break our hearts. Number two, he went public. He knew that being silent was unacceptable. Edmund Burke is attributed with saying that all that is required for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Mordecai knew that somebody had to speak. 
Number three, he was not afraid or ashamed or embarrassed to let people know where he stood as a pro-lifer. Number four, he was well-informed. He takes documents and shows Esther. He knew what he was talking about. Know what you're talking about on the issues. Number five, he worked his connections. You'll see in the story that he worked it so that he talked through the chain of command. He had no other way to get to the queen. Number six, he called out continually for immediate response. It was risky. It was aggressive. It was uncomfortable. But he said, now is the time to respond. Number seven, he recognized the seriousness of the issue. He says to Esther, don't think for a minute that you are even going to survive this. You think our nation is going to survive? God's going to wipe our nation off the planet if things don't change. And we will be included. Number eight, he knew that God works through people. God works through people. Number nine, he knew that inaction was not an option. Just like not being vocal, he had to get involved and he was active. Verse 14, and finally, number 10, he knew that God works through prayer. They called for a fast, and I assume they were begging God during that time to be merciful. Mordecai is a model for us. His issue was genocide. Our issue is abortion. His issue was a direct mandate on a certain date coming up, and so there was an urgency to the hour. Ours is a mandate of permission for those who want to kill their babies. And for the next baby being aborted, there is an urgency to the hour. Let's, let's, let's use our connections. Let's be informed. Let's get vocal. Let's not be embarrassed to be public about our pro-life position. Amen? Let's stand and close in prayer. No closing hymn today. And so, Father, we need your help. And we need courage. And we need strength. And I pray that you would stir our hearts. There are people here who are connected with people in high office. Would you use those connections? Father, would you bring great conviction upon our Supreme Court justices? Would you break the heart of our president and our vice president? Would you open their eyes to their own arrogances? Father, for the the meaningless roles of those who are in leadership over the House and the Senate, would you wake them up? Would you help us to know how how to cry out so that they hear us? Would you forgive us for our silence and our inactivity? Would you, would you break our heart over the laws that bring death on so many? I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You're dismissed to Sunday school.
Father, may your Holy Spirit take this account that we will examine today and use it to just um, drive us into action. That we would not be a complacent people, but that we would recognize the urgency of the hour and that we would shine as bright lights in this wicked world. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Perhaps you have uh, occasions, like I have, where unplanned events became the most urgent matter of your life. They come in all sizes and shapes. I recall many years ago in our home in Martinsburg where we had a split foyer, I had been washing the car that afternoon on a a warm winter day following an extremely cold stretch. Unbeknownst to me, the frost-free spigot uh, in the side of our house above our family room walls had, had frozen and burst. Um, but it worked when I opened it up and I had water coming through the hose. And when I was done, I had failed to go over and shut off the spigot. And I had just allowed the nozzle handle to stop the water. And with a hole in the side of the pipe in the wall, all afternoon and into the evening, the water had run down the wall and into our family room, soaking the carpet and running through the family room and out the family room door uh, across our backyard. For some reason, we hadn't been down there, and it was late in the evening when in my socks, I walked down the steps and immediately stepped into about two inches of soaking wet carpet. All of a sudden, my agenda for the evening completely changed. I had an urgent matter. I remember calling a friend of mine, and it was about 11 o'clock, at night, and uh, he was already in bed, but he answered the phone. And he said, I'm in bed. I said, Get out of bed. I need help. He did. What a faithful friend. Proverbs says that a friend nearby is better than a brother far away. He sensed in my voice urgency. Urgency. Today is our final message in a a New Year's three-sermon series on urgency. We've been thinking about the fact that believers in Christ are to live with urgency. We're to be compelled by the urgency of the gospel. And today we need to recognize that we live in the hour of urgency. Urgency. It's not living stressed out. It's not marginless living, but it is living motivated by the most important priorities. It is recognizing that there is something that, that overshadows all other areas and we need to be driven by these matters. They are urgent. This morning our message is a little bit different for a Sanctity of Human Life Sunday for me. And I want us to turn to the book of Esther in our Old Testament. Esther is um, a very interesting historical book. So if you're not into history, you might struggle this morning. But it is a most fascinating story. And I think you'll be encouraged. (laughs) 
Esther was a young woman and her story is told in this account. She really is, in, for all intents and purposes, the hero of the story. I know that many of you know the story quite well, and others of you, though, know it maybe a little bit, and some of the details are fuzzy, and then there's some who don't know it at all, and we don't have time to do the, the entire story, so let me encourage you to read this book. It's, it reads like a novel. It's quite interesting, this book of Esther. You need to understand that the key players, Esther and her cousin Mordecai, who was older and who raised her, she was an orphan. You need to know that Mordecai and Esther were Jews. And they were displaced in a faraway land. The land where they were held and had been carried out years before was really part of the judgment of God upon the nation of Israel for their disobedience. You'll recall a more familiar story that we recount quite often would be Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego in a similar way where Nebuchadnezzar had swooped down upon Israel and come through on some of his campaigns and he had taken the best of the young people and he had looted all of Israel and returned home to Babylon. So Ahasuerus and his father Darius I had come from their campaigns and they had had come through the the land of Israel, and they also had captured young people. And they had taken them not to Babylon, which would be the land of Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That would be present-day Iraq. Ahasuerus, in our story of Esther today, was the king of Persia. And many of the Israelites had been misplaced and taken up into Persia, which is present-day Iran. What happened after years went by is... They kind of relaxed the system and many of the Jews had returned back home. They were allowed to just go back. Of course, their land had been ransacked. The walls of Jerusalem had been broken down. There was no temple. It had been destroyed. And that's what, in our historical books of the Old Testament, the book of Ezra is about, for example. A remnant of the people trickling back from Babylon and Persia, coming back, and Ezra, having a heart burden to lead the people spiritually, rebuilt the temple. But there were still no walls around Jerusalem. And that's when God got a hold of Nehemiah's heart. And Nehemiah came back. And and he rebuilt the walls. So many people, uh, tens of thousands of the Israelites had returned home, of the Jews had returned home. But tens of thousands of them remained scattered in the known world of that day. I want you to just kind of relax a little bit, and I, I, want you, I want us to just do a little bit of storytelling today. We're going to end up in chapter 4, and so that you know where we're going, I want you to be ready to take in a list of characteristics of cousin Mordecai. Mordecai, to me, in many ways, is the hero of the story of Esther. You'll see that they teamed up in a terrific team. Now, it might help your mindset a little bit, and I might forget to comment later about it. A couple of interesting things about the story of Esther and about Esther herself. Again, as opposed in contrast with the story of, say, Daniel, 
and the Hebrew young people that were with Nebuchadnezzar, you'll recall that as the book of Daniel opens up, that great story, remember Daniel as a young man, immediately what? He immediately proclaimed that I am not one of you. And though he was in a a retraining program and an indoctrination program, Daniel refused to eat the king's meat. And immediately he took a strong stand. And everybody knew who Daniel's God was. And everybody knew that Daniel was a Jew. And in spite of that, Daniel, by God's sovereign appointment, climbed the ranks and served in high-ranking appointments in government. And he was a known Jew. And he regularly repeated the name of God. Everybody knew that he would not bow down. Along with the the three Hebrew children, we call them, Shadrach, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they stood openly in the public while everybody bowed to the statue and they refused. In contrast, when we come to the book of Esther, Mordecai and Esther never told anybody at first that they were Jews. They were kind of embedded into the culture. They probably were sort of secular in their mindset. As a result of that, they also never named the name of God. People did not know who their God was and people did not know that they were Jews. They were just kind of common, ordinary people. But they were Jews and they had not forgotten that. And in contrast with Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego... In a similar way, and yet in a contrasting way, through God's sovereign appointment, He placed these secular Jews in a position of influence. And it's very interesting that in the book of Esther, the the word or name of God is never mentioned. It's the only book in the Bible where God's name is never mentioned in the book of Esther. So what you need to do to get this story, because it's it's too big of a story for our time... What you need to do is you need to listen now, and I'm going to introduce to you, and we're going to read scripture to find out about them a little bit. Let's, let's meet the five key players in this story. There are more, but if you get these five key names, you'll understand the flow of the story, and you'll understand what Mordecai is up against. Because what I want you to understand is that Mordecai, by chapter 4, becomes a model for us as to how to respond to a wicked king who wants to bring death to the people. Now Mordecai was not dealing with he was not dealing with abortion but he was indeed dealing with the sanctity of human life. He was dealing with the matter of genocide. The king makes a decree that on a certain day he's going to wipe out all of the Jews. And so it was genocide and so he was indeed dealing even in a more overt manner, with the, with the disrespect of human life. And I want you to feel that, and I want you to recognize, and it occurs to me, that we are not the first group of God's people who are living in a culture that disrespects life. God's people have often found themselves living in pagan cultures, or living in times where they have wicked leadership who disregard life. And they stood strong. And I want Mordecai to stand as a model for us. But let's get the flow of the story and then let's make the application at the end. The first character is a key player. It's King Ahasuerus. Um, Some of your Bibles might say Xerxes. Xerxes is a Greek translation of his Persian name. 
And Ahasuerus is a Hebrew translation of his Persian name. And uh, some of you might have study Bibles and you can look up what his Persian name really was. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, this is the Ahasuerus, I'm in Esther chapter 1 verse 1. The Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel... Okay, this was his winter home, and this is where he had built a city, and he had built, uh, he had built a palace there, and he lived here much of the year. That in the third year of his reign, verse 3, he gave a feast for all of his officials and his servants, the army of Persia and Media, and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days. In fact, it was 180 days. It is unlikely that the same people stayed there for all 180 days, but it is likely that he throws this huge banquet that lasts 180 days and he cycles all of these governors and military leaders through and he is showing off his wealth, his pomp, his power. Yes, you need to understand that Ahasuerus is very arrogant. He's very brutal. He's the king of Persia. Whatever he says goes. He can speak a word, and it is irrevocable law. And when these days were complete, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days. So this is another feast in the court of the garden of the king's palace. And there were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry and marble and mother of pearl and precious stones. And drinks were served in golden vessels and vessels of different kinds. And the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. In other words, no rules. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. That's our first character. He's an unbelievably pompous, arrogant, proud king. He's very powerful, and he is throwing a sequence of banquets to impress the world with his power. That's why they give you snippets of what these people saw in his palace, of, these, of the marble and the linens and the colors. Bible students and historians wonder about these banquets, and though the Bible doesn't tell us why he's launch this sequence of banquets, I found it interesting and I thought the quickest way to cover it was to just read to you out of Warren Wiersbe's commentary on the book of Esther. He says this, what was the purpose behind the banquet for the nobles and officials of the empire? Scripture doesn't tell us, but secular history does. The Greek historian Herodotus may refer to these banquets in his text, History, where he states that Ahasuerus was conferring with his leaders about a possible invasion of Greece. So he's bringing in all of his leaders, all of his government officials, and all of his military leaders, because he has an agenda, and he wants to show them what a proud, powerful king he is, so that they will agree with him, because he's ready to launch a campaign to take over the world. You see... Ahasuerus' father, Darius I, now don't confuse this Darius with the Darius in the book of Daniel, two different Dariuses. 
But Ahasuerus' father, Darius I, had invaded Greece and been shamefully defeated at Marathon in 490. While preparing to return to Greece and get revenge, Darius had died. And now his son felt compelled to avenge his father and expand his empire at the same time. Herodotus claims that Ahasuerus planned to invade all of Europe and reduce the whole earth into one empire. According to Herodotus, the king's words were these, quote, My intent is to throw a bridge over the Hellespont and march an army through Europe against Greece, and thereby I may obtain vengeance from the Athenians for the wrongs committed by them against the Persians and against my father. So you see, they had defeated his father. He was, he was pretty mad about it. And so he was organizing a campaign where he wanted to go accomplish what his father couldn't accomplish. That's the setting of chapter 1. It is interesting to note, uh, according to historical timeline, that by the time we get to chapter 2, four years has gone by. So the events of chapter 1 are separated by four years. And it is believed that he launched this campaign... And history says that he sat on a cliff in a throne and watched the Athenians defeat his navy and burn his navy. He was defeated and sent back. And the rest of Esther takes place after he returned from this campaign. That's just the historical stage. And I share that because it's kind of helpful to picture what kind of people you're dealing with here. And it's kind of interesting history. Our first character is King Ahasuerus. Our second character is now introduced and... Notice her. She comes in in verse 9. Let's pick it up. In verse 8, we get the drinking orders and the parties open. In fact, um, archaeological excavations show that in these banquet rooms, there are literally well pits that were built into the middle of the banquet floor so that party goers could drink and feast for days on end. And the well pits were there for them to disengorge themselves. So that they could just continue with this, this base, hedonistic approach to food and everything else that would go on at a party like this. So this is the seven-day banquet that's going on. And, and then all of a sudden we're introduced in verse 9 to Queen Vashti. She's the wife of Ahasuerus. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. And on the seventh day, verse 10, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded his seven clerks who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, verse 11, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. You got the picture? Over on this side of the, of the court, in these big banquet halls, the king and all of his buds are partying. Seven days of feasting. Non-stop drinking. By this time, the king is influenced by the wine. He's drunk. He knows that on the other side of the court, there's a women's banquet going on for seven days, and that Vashti is honoring the wives and some of the important women of the day. And the king, in his drunken stupor, gets this great idea. Go get Vashti, tell her to put her crown on, and come over here and do a beauty walkthrough so that all these men can check her out. I want everybody to see how beautiful my wife is. Look at verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command that the eunuchs had delivered to her. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Wow. You read the rest of chapter 1. Here's what's going to happen. 
It's a very important part of the story. King Ahasuerus is absolutely enraged. He's humiliated and embarrassed that he couldn't get his own wife to come walk through the banquet hall where all of his guys are there. The queen knew that they were nothing but a drunk bunch of men and she refused to walk through there. That literally would have condemned her to death. She was not evidently condemned to death. But the king has to save face, and so he gathers his consultants around him, and he says, hey boys, what do I do? The short of it is, they create a law that all women in the whole nation have to obey their husbands from that day on, and that Queen Vashti can no longer ever enter the eyesight of Ahasuerus. He divorces her and puts her out of his eyesight forever. He showed her. But look at chapter 2, verse 1. And after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, as well as the content of alcohol in his bloodstream, he remembered Vashti and what he had done and what had been decreed against her. Based upon the immediate response of his consults, he evidently had some regret and he realizes he had done a very stupid thing. And that launches... What becomes a theme of the story, a mandatory beauty contest for all of the young maidens of the entire Persian Empire. Sucked up into this mandatory beauty pageant is um, Esther. We meet our next two players. So we've met Ahasuerus. We've met Vashti the queen, who was the queen, who's no longer allowed in the presence of the king. We now meet in chapter 2... Uncle Mordecai, interesting character, verse 5 of chapter 2. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer. He was a Benjamite, Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives. See what I mean? Carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. And he was bringing up Hadassah. That is Esther. Her Hebrew name was Hadassah. Her name here in Persia was Esther. She was the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. They had evidently passed away, and she was evidently much younger than Mordecai. He was her cousin. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother had died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai. See, it's a forced beauty pageant. And this guy, Haggai, uh, is in charge of all this beauty pageant. Here's what's going to happen. Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put into the custody of Haggai who had charge of the women. And the young women pleased him and won his favor. Uh, Excuse me, the young woman, Esther, pleased Haggai and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of the food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. You can only imagine the emotional situation that we're in here. It is highly unlikely that Esther chose to be in this situation. And so here's how the rules unfold from here. We must speed along. They spend like a year beautifying and culturizing these, this harem of beautiful women of whom Esther had surfaced and was given seven maids and a, a nicer apartment in which to live. She found favor. You see... 
God is sovereign over even the hearts of wicked men. He is strategically placing her where he wants her to be at just the right time later. But what's going to happen is one at a time, these maidens in the beauty competition are going to go and they're going to spend a day and a night with the king and and then they're going to come back to the dormitory where they live and and then after this goes on for a while if the king calls one of them back she's going to be the new queen to replace Vashti well that's exactly what happened look at verse 15 of chapter 2 when the turn came for Esther the daughter of Abihail the uncle of Mordecai who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king she asked for nothing except that Haggai the king's eunuch who had charge of the women advised she only did what he said Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. She must have been incredibly striking. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all of the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head, and he made her queen instead of Vashti. And then the king gave a great feast for all of his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. He was one happy old bird to get his new wife. So we've met four of our key characters. We know Ahasuerus the king. We know his former wife Vashti who said, No way, Jose. A little... Uh, Spanish lingo there, Hector. And, um, and then that created this, this male, this insecure male law that went out across the land that from then on all women must obey their husbands because they were concerned that if Vashti got away with it that all the women would disobey their husbands. Uh, it's very interesting to read. You must read this stuff carefully. Then starts the beauty pageant, and we're introduced to Mordecai, who had raised the beautiful maid Esther. Now, there's one really important character that makes everything happen and sets us up for our lessons. Listen closely. We're going to move here. We're introduced to him in chapter 3. What happens right at the end of chapter 2 sets the stage for some other activity, and you must read it and get it on your own. You, You must not miss this. But you have to do this. You have homework today. It's really interesting. But Mordecai, who has evidently some position in the government, at the city gate, picks up on some whispering, and he foils an assassination plot at the end of chapter 2. Later on, that's going to come back and save his life. It's very interesting. But at the beginning of chapter 3, we realize that at this point, one of the favorite guys that Ahasuerus has in his kingdom is this guy, Wicked Haman. After these things, King Ahasuerus, chapter 3, verse 1, promoted Haman, the Agagite. Let's just stop for a minute there and take in who an Agagite is. You remember Agag from the Amalekites? He's the one who Samuel hewed in pieces before the Lord at Gilgal when Saul didn't put him to death. He is a descendant of the Amalekites and of King Agag. Haman the Agagite, you just know that's not a good guy. (laughs) The son of whatever his name is, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Now, 
We got to get into our, the point of our whole message on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And I want you to see the mindset and the heartbeat of Mordecai. He's the man today. Haman is elevated by Ahasuerus above all other officials in the kingdom besides himself. And all the king's servants, verse 2, who were at the king's gate, bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Why? Because Mordecai knew who he was. And he knew he was a son of the living God, a child of Abraham. And he would not bow down to this pagan Canaanite, regardless of what the king said. You have demonstrated right here a righteous man engaged in civil disobedience. And he doesn't care. Well, when they, then the king's servant who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. Now it's coming out. We have the stage set for genocide. So these servants are watching Mordecai, and Mordecai just stands up. He didn't going to bow down to Haman every day, and they're all like kissing the ring. And every day they talk to him about this. And so finally, they go to Haman, who's so pompous, he doesn't even know what's going around. He's only paying attention to his own reflection in all the windows as he walks in. And he says, do you know that there is a Jew named Mordecai who will not bow down to you? Look what happens. They spoke to him day after day, verse 4, and when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down, they pointed out to him, verse 5, and when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In other words, Mordecai seizes the moment and his leverage with the king, and he realizes that he can influence the king to make a law to wipe out every Jew who lives in the kingdom of Persia. Genocide. Wiping out a specific people group based on race or culture. And in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast per, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which was the month of Adar, and then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad, dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws. They're Christians. They really weren't. They were Jews, but you understand my point? If it please the king, verse 9, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. In fact, I will pay... To the king's coffers, 10,000 talents. Where was he going to get it? He was going to get it from the Jews' bank accounts and their homes and their jewelry boxes. The king isn't paying any attention. And he says, keep your money and do whatever you want with the people. I don't care. So the, the law goes out. Let your eyes go down to verse 13. And letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. 
I want to tell you something. This isn't a bunch of fat guys in black robes who think they're pompous enough to tell people you can pluck an unborn baby out of your belly and flush it down the toilet. This is a bunch of guys who say you can take an entire people group and on this day on the calendar, you can wipe them off the map. This is a, this is a more extreme disrespect for the sanctity of life than our own Supreme Court and our own president. We have the option to kill. They had a mandate to kill. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And so all of Susa was thrown into confusion. The word spreads and everybody's worked up. You need to listen quickly because I want to point out a number of responses now. And this is the whole point of all of this history lesson. How do you respond when you have a king who despises life? How do you respond when you have someone you cannot respect at the helm of your nation and they foolishly disregard the living God of the universe and they act as if they are gods and they, they can rule over the very lives of people and they can pluck life and throw it away. This is Mordecai learned all that he had been done. Verse, chapter 4, verse 1. And he tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and ashes and he went out into the midst of the city and he cried out loud with a loud and bitter cry. Listen closely. Here's Mordecai's response. Lessons Fellowship Bible Church can learn about living in a culture of death from Mordecai. How do I respond? Number one, he was deeply grieved by the laws of death. Mordecai receives this new law and he is so grieved that he tears his clothes, throws ashes over his head, and he goes out by the the center of the city and he starts to wail. You know what it looks like for a grown man to stand in the middle of the street and wail? And what bothers me is that I think I understand what's happening and I'm not even tempted to wail. And I would think we would be, I would think we would wail all the time at the bloodbath that's gone on since 1974. He was deeply grieved. The potential destruction of life was overwhelming to him. Secondly, I want you to see that he did it in public. He went public with his noise. He strategically placed himself to be seen and to be heard right in the midst of the city. And he knew that silence would never accomplish anything. It is attributed to the British politician Edmund Burke that all that is required for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Thirdly, I want you to see that he was not afraid or ashamed or embarrassed to let people know where he stood on the sanctity of human life. He was wailing because he was pro-life. He was loud in public because he was pro-life. And he wasn't embarrassed of his position, and he wasn't ashamed of his position, and he kept it up, and he did it right at the king's gate. Be the equivalent of the capital steps. There is a time to stand in public and make noise. Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego stood in public. Mordecai begins the process of standing in public. Fourthly, I want you to see that he was well informed. Esther is looking out the window and her servants come up to her. She's the queen and they tell her that your your cousin Mordecai, who is essentially like her father... 
is out in the middle of the street wailing in sackcloth and ashes. And Esther's like, what's going on? Then we realize that the reason Mordecai did it was to get Esther's attention. She sends her servants out there with a set of clothes and says, Papa, dress yourself. He says, no. Look what happens. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, verse 4, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. And then Esther called for Hathach, one of the king's eunuch who had been appointed to attend her. He was a, a, a trusted servant of hers. Go to Mordecai and learn what this is about. He goes to Mordecai in the square in the city in the front of the king's gate, verse 7. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury. And Mordecai, verse 8, gave him a copy of the written decree issued by Susa. He documented. Fourthly, he was well informed. He knew what he was talking about. Listen, there's one thing to have zeal, but zeal without knowledge is not very effective. We have to know what we're talking about. We have to. It's not easy all the time. We have a lot of voices coming at us. Ignorance of the facts is not helpful. Fifthly, he works his connections. Who was his greatest connection? It was Esther, the queen. And he was working his connection. These were strategic relationships. And he used any influence he had. Some of you know people who know people. Are you working your relationships? Sixthly, he called for an immediate response. Look at verses 8 and 9. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree. Then in verse 9, And Hathach went and told Esther of what Mordecai had said. Verse 10, Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know... So everybody knows, Mordecai, that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king for these 30 days. Back up at the end of verse 8, I want you to see that when he's talking to this servant of Esther's, he says to him, tell Esther, command her to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. There is the urgency of the hour. Do it now. The sixth thing was that Mordecai called for immediate action. He didn't procrastinate. The seventh thing is he recognized the seriousness of the issue. Verses 11 that I already read, they will be put to death. He recognizes that it is very urgent. He recognizes that that this is a very serious issue. Let's pick up a few more verses. And they told Mordecai that Esther had said what Esther had said. So, So Mordecai says to Esther, you have to go to the king And you have to make an appeal on behalf of this wicked Haman law where they're going to kill all the Jews. Esther sends word back to Mordecai and says, see, there's words going back and forth. They're not talking to each other directly. And Esther says to Mordecai, don't you know that there's only one rule about this, that if you go in front of the king uninvited, he'll kill you. 
It was to avoid assassination attempts. So wherever the king sat on his throne, there's halls and doors and, and, and bars and barriers. And where you enter, if you come so far through a certain entry point to get to the king, if you are not invited, they will kill you on the spot. The guards will whack you right there. Unless the king, who in your vision can see you, holds up his scepter and says, Ho, 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 let him, let him come. That's the only thing that will spare your life. Otherwise, you take one more step, whack, you're gone. And if the king isn't paying attention, you're dead. That is the recognition that Haman had, uh, excuse me, that Mordecai has of the importance of the issue. But he understands something. Number eight, he understands that God works through people. Look at this, verse 14. Mordecai goes back to Esther and do you, this is verse 13. Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think of yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Okay, the Jews will not be wiped off the face of the earth at this event, but all the Jews in Persia will be. And who knows whether you have not come into the kingdom for such a time as this. That's a key phrase in the whole book of Esther. For such a time as this, Esther. For such a time as this. So then she says, okay, I'm going to do it. She gets herself ready. She tells Mordecai to tell all of his people to start fasting. All the Jews start fasting. She has all of her servants start fasting. And she walks into the Jews. See, Mordecai understood that God works through people. Esther, you got to go. God works through people on this. Nine, he knew that inaction was not an option. They were going to wipe everybody out. Inaction was not an option, verse 14. And finally, number 10, he understood that God works through prayer. They called for a fasting, verse 16. You got the picture? And so Esther puts her life on the line for the cause of life. And she walks in and she steps across the threshold. And the king looks up, and there's beautiful Esther. And he raises his scepter and he says, My queen, come in here. You got to read the rest of the story. It's unbelievable. It's just a great story. Haman's going to build a gallows to hang Mordecai. He can't stand him. And in a strange twist of events, Haman's going to get hung on his own gallows. And Mordecai is going to be elevated to the second in command over all the kingdom. And the Jews are going to be able to defend themselves and they're saved. Mordecai was quite a guy, wasn't he? I think it's because of Mordecai. He was deeply grieved by the laws of death. He went public. He couldn't stay silent. He was not afraid or ashamed to let people know where he stood on his pro-life position. He was well-informed. He was not ignorant. He worked his connections. He called for immediate response. He recognized the seriousness of the issue. Listen, it's not just babies that are going to end up dead here. We're all going to end up dead. You think this is stopping? This This is a culture of death now. He understood that God works through people. He knew that inaction was no option. And he understood that God works through prayer. What do we do? What do we do? I don't know what you do. I don't know what we do corporately completely, but I know that we must be praying 
even fasting over this issue. I know that there's, it's time for some noise publicly at some level. There are opportunities for these. Appropriate. There are certain opportunities where civil disobedience is appropriate. We don't get violent, but we don't bow down to pagans. And just because a bunch of pagans think they rule the world, they don't. Almighty God is who we answer to ultimately. Maybe the Spirit of God will use this to wake us up to the urgency of the hour. Let's pray together. Father, we need your help. We need your strength. And I just pray that you would show us how to live. I pray that you would um, help us to be wise as serpents but gentle as doves. I pray that you would help our convictions to be so strong that we cannot be silent. I pray that we would be driven by the gospel with the urgency of the reality of the finality of eternity without Christ. And I pray that you would help us recognize the urgency of the hour at hand and show us how to respond appropriately. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.